Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is March 29, 2018. This is episode 2192 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a listener calls day. That's where you pick up your phone and you dial a phone number, 866-65-THINK, 866 T-H-I-N-K, or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on contact, and then use the speak pipe to send us your uh, your question or comment for the show. Best chance of getting on the show is as follows. Ask your question or make your point in one or two sentences immediately. You could say, hey Jack, this is so-and-so if you want to, but you know that's, that's about it, and go right into your point. Uh, then give me your details. If you do that, I promise you that your call will go more smoothly and you'll be more likely to get on the air. If you do call in from a cell phone, make sure you have some bars on that cell phone. One is not some bars. So two or three would be at least the minimum to make sure you're going to have a clear connection. Call from a quiet area. Don't call from the back of a motorcycle or running heavy equipment or while you're being strafed by F-16 jets or anything like that. And again, you'll be more likely to get on the air. Here's what we have today. We have... How to choose a gardening method of all those methods that are out there. Thoughts on NRCS soil reports versus soil testing. Thoughts on runoff water from commercial farms. Plantings for ducks in their holding areas. What the heck is the 460 Roland and why would you want one? And how do you start a Roth IRA to invest on your own? All of that and more in just a moment. I uh, just want to remind you guys before we get into today's show that if you like this show and the work that we do here, you can help support us really, really simply. All you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members, and there you can sign up for the Member Support Brigade. That's $50 a year. You'll get discounts to over 70 different vendors. If you use those discounts, you'll get your money back and you support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and get right into it. We have a call now on gardening methods. Let's go ahead and hear from that caller. Hi, Jack. My question is, I've been reading about Back to Eden Gardening. I've read about the Mittlatter Gardening, Raised Box, uh, and all different types. I am now moving to the country, only going to have about one acre. But I'm trying to figure out which is the best to be able to produce healthy food in the long term for my family. Uh, moving to Missouri, uh, just south of St. Louis. Thank you. Okay, so, I mean, let's start out with something. You know, for instance, you mentioned raised box gardening and you mentioned Mettweiler. Um, of course, raised box gardening or raised bed gardening is a, a, one of the things within the Mettweiler method. Right? So, and they actually talk about it as though it's their method. And you also, you didn't mention, but there's what you would call three dimensional gardening where you, uh, take something like a tomato or a cucumber and put it on a trellis instead of let it going trailing across the ground. And uh, if you look at the Metlilander explanation of things, they will say that in traditional gardening, you don't use a 3D approach, but in their method, you do. Um, let's talk about Back to Eden for a, meth a minute here. Back to Eden, uh, gardening, 
is mulching with wood chips. That's it. That's the whole thing. There's nothing else to it. It is wherever you garden, you mulch with wood chips. Um, I'm sorry, I was mulching with wood chips when I was eight years old tending my grandfather's garden in Pennsylvania. I have mulched with wood chips almost my whole life because it works well assuming you can get good quality wood chips. So it's it's not a method. Metliler is a method, but it claims ownership of things that are universal. Uh, Back to Eden is a way a guy gardened at his place for many, many years. And by doing it for many, many, many years, he built up really healthy, impressive soil. Um, raised bed gardening is just a technique within a, a much broader strategy of gardening because in that raised bed garden, we could be using the fertilizer mix that the Metliler people talk about, which I believe is made up of 16 specific nutrients beyond the three of conventional gardening. Uh, but it would still be a raised bed, and it's not unique that it's theirs. It's just metal island really, really comes down to it is a fertilizer that they've built and could, you know, cobbed together a variety of uh, gardening methods, either using standing free beds at 18-inch width or raised beds at 18 or standard width, which they call four feet. All right? I, so none of these methods are really... Anything other than a concept that people use to, in the end, try to sell you on an idea or sell you on something you can buy in many instances. Uh, Mel Bartholomew has the book Square Foot Gardening. To a degree, it is a method. Uh, it also uses vertical growing spaces and raised bed gardens, which everybody else does. The method that he came up with is managing the soil by the square foot and managing the planting by the square foot with planting recommendations. Plant one of these or four of these or nine of these per square foot, and then you can put up a 16 different things in a 4 by 4 garden. could be one of each, or it could be nine beans and one pepper and one tomato here. And if you want to do a, a, a zucchini squash, well, you need to give up, like, six of your squares to do that. It, it, that's how they just... The allocation. And here's the thing about all of these methods. They're a lot like diets. If you follow them to the letter, they all work. Which one is best? It depends. What you want to do and what your soil's like and how much time you want to put into it, etc. In the end, what do I think works best? What works best is heavy mulching and planting until you figure out what works for you. Should you do raised beds? It depends. Which soil like? Um, which climate like? The drier and more arid your soil or your uh, your climate is, the less beneficial raised beds are unless your soil itself sucks. And then you got to do raised beds because you got to actually build up soil, if that makes sense. If I was going to advise someone just starting out with gardening, I would advise you to go ahead and put in raised beds in most instances. Or put in beds in most instances of, you know, a standard 4x8 or 4x4 bed. Now, how would they they differ between a raised bed and beds? So beds just mean that we don't actually go in there and build a box. We go in and we cut sod out in the dimensions of our garden. Uh, We get all of the sod out so that reduces our, our, you know, our weeds. We dig that soil and maybe till in some amendments like... 
compost and composted manure would be a good idea, maybe some uh, mushroom compost. And they'll end up built up a little bit because we've taken the compacted soil and kind of tilled it a little bit. Uh, then we're going to use a good quality mulch. Uh, that would either be straw that you can trust. And the, way, the easiest way to t test straw to see if it's straw you can t tr trust when you find a source, take some straw, put it in a bucket of water, soak it in the water for a couple hours, plant some beans, just plain old beans of any kind, in a pot. Plant some beans in the same soil in another pot. Water one pot with water from a known source and water one pot with the water from the straw. If the beans grow the same, you're good. If the beans that you're watering with the straw water grow like crap, you got glyphosate most likely in your in your uh, in your in your straw. So you probably shouldn't use that straw. And and the reason we use a bean for that test is legumes that are not GMO'd against glyphosate and other herbicides are one of the most sensitive plants, and they're also one of the most aggressive, easy to grow plants otherwise. So if we see an adverse effect from you know, any mulch that we soak in water and then water our beans with, compare, you have to have a control, right? It's a science. Uh, then we know that we don't want to trust that source. And, and just continue to mulch and do as little digging as possible. Uh, I am a big fan of the broad fork if you are in a place where you can use it. Uh, if you were asking me about growing integrated systems like I do here, I would have different answers. But if you just want a garden, either raised bed or in-ground bed. And learn to take care of your soil build a composting system if you have the ability to get chickens get chickens, get a composting bin for your chickens, put anything compostable in there I also recommend building a worm bed if you do those things you're probably going to be okay I recommend for uh, fertility that at least in the initial uh, setup that you use some uh, agricultural, horticultural molasses And a dry product is something that I prefer over a wet product for that, but I have been known to use both. I would soak and saturate the soil with that before you mulch it, and then I would put it on top of the mulch. I would recommend a good quality fertilizer uh, for your garden beds, uh, like Dr. Earth 444 is a solid fertilizer, and I would recommend uh, soil drench and spraying of the plants themselves with liquid kelp. Uh, along with something like Garrett Juice or a, the liquid version of the Dr. Earth 444 fertilizer. And that's what I would do. And I would look at your, your plants for any signs of deficiencies. And, you know, your, your chief deficiencies that you're going to find are calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc. And you can get a, any chelated organic product and either get, you'll get iron and zinc as a single product or you'll get calcium and magnesium as a single product. Because the thing is, your plant will need both of them in any instance where it's deficient in one of them. So if, if you have a plant that's deficient in calcium uh, and you give it calcium, but it's also deficient in magnesium, not only will it still need the magnesium, but it won't be able to uptake the calcium. So those are the four most common minerals of deficiency other than nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, so if you, if you take that approach, you'll probably do okay, and you probably, with where you're moving, are going to have reasonably good soil to start out with, uh, probably better than most people would think. It's amazing what mulch does. You know, there's another method called lasagna gardening. It's, there's no such thing. It's, it's sheet mulching. Uh, and, and if you take, I'll give you another way to get a, a, a garden off the ground really, really quick. Clear an area of sod. You can leave the sod down and still do it because it'll, die back a lot, but it'll, you'll be better off if you get rid of the sod in the area that you want to do. Throw down 
some, like I said, dried molasses and chicken feed, any kind of you know chicken feed. And then on top of that, lay down two layers of soaked cardboard. Onto the top of the cardboard, did I say compost? Lay down your your your. Uh, I'm sorry. Lay down your uh, your molasses and your chicken feed and a layer of compost. Then two layers of cardboard. Then a layer of compost on top of the cardboard. Then a layer of wood mulch or straw mulch on top of the compost and let it go. Just don't don't do anything until next season except keep it wet. And when you when you pull, when you go to plant into that, when you dig it up, you'll see about a kabillion worms in there and soil biology and activity that you don't know what to do with. It, now you will say, well, I want to I want to start gardening this year. Well, do a d- dug in bed or a raised bed or two or three, and the areas you want to expand to next year, do what I just said, and then convert those areas this fall when you put them to bed. Because if you're starting out new and you've never gardened before, put in two to four beds that and be done, and just focus. Don't try to start seeds from uh, start plants from seed this year. If you want to plant things like beans or squash, they go straight in the ground. Hey, go ahead and do that. But, you know, just start out with two to four beds. Make sure you have some sort of good, decent irrigation system in. And, and, and master the craft of basically taking care of plants. Don't worry about how much you get out of it this year. Master the craft of taking care of plants. Plan your expansion for your larger garden. She the shit out of it. And, you know, go from there. If you have any further questions on this, please get back to me. I, I, I just think that we make too much of everybody's methodology. And, you know, Met Lilar's like, well, you take these 16 different nutrients, and that's everything the plant needs. How the hell do you know what everything the plant needs is? Because everything the plant needs is in most soil. You know, boron's very important, but the amount of boron that's in most a teaspoon of soil is probably enough for, for 100 square feet of, of, of ground. But can the plant get to it? That's the key. You build the soil biology, and everything t- tends to take care of itself. And you could do worse by t- than taking a look at Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor's website, and following his methodology for organic gardening. Uh, just my thoughts on that. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I recently had a uh, soy report done for my land in Indiana, and it's from the NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service. And I wonder if you could tell me if you think that these reports are valid or reliable uh, because it seems to me that what they've done is made a prediction of what my soil should be based on the landscape and from um, satellite photos and so forth. And uh, I know that you understand that soil can change over time and uh, you can raise cattle and change soil or put different vegetation on soil and it will change over time. So I was wondering what your thoughts are, whether or not I should rely on this report or um, if I should have a more detailed report done based on my specific land. Thank you very much. Great great show. Thanks a lot. Bye. So let's start out with uh, NRCS, which is National Resource Conservation Services. Out of every government organization in the United States, they are probably in the top ten of most beneficial and least parasitic uh, organizations. Uh, they generally do good work. They're generally staffed by good people, uh, and they generally do help uh, quite a bit, and they are generally concerned with preventing soil arrange, uh, erosion and creating good land management practices 
um, and doing so in in the face of conventional agriculture and trying to get conventional ag people to do at least less bad than they're currently doing, like changing the way, the time, or how they plow, doing more on-contour plowing, uh, putting in um, agricultural terraces, which we call swells in our world, things like that. They are good people, and they do generally know what they are doing. They are generally competent people. Uh, on a soil report, I'm not sure what exact type of report you got because there's a lot of different things that they'll do for you. And one of the things you can do on their website is you can go there and basically pull up a report on your own uh, and go through each line item one by one and figure things out and what have you. I don't know if they have a service where somebody goes through and, and goes through and gets all the individual data and compiles it for you versus letting you do it yourself. Or maybe there's a third party out there that does that and calls it an RCS or report or what have you. But what these are, they're based on surveys and knowledge of the area. And there'll be things like, is the soil in your area primarily sand or clay? How deep is it? What is its most common suitable uses? Is it good for agricultural use, etc.? Uh, is it good for rangeland for cattle? Is it good for planting corn or what have you? And for instance, if you pulled up one on mine, it would say that it is actually not good at all for agricultural use when it comes to cropping, such as growing corn or, or something like that. And it would be absolutely correct. This would be a terrible place to try to drop a plow in the ground because four inches deep, you're going to hit limestone rock. You also have highly alkaline soil, so those two things together don't really work out well. Um, you can check up a soil report down the road a bit where there's some deeper soils, and it'll say it's marginal instead of not suitable. So in those cases, at least on my land and, and around us, it, it's correct. However, these are soil topography-type information and soil composition-type information. And, and yes, you, we can change the way soil acts you can if we do the right things with compost teas for instance we can take a clay soil and if you looked at its structure in your hands you would say that that looks more like a sandy loam because it will form structure from biological activity that looks more like a loam than a clay and it really is more like i guess you'd call it a clay loam at that point so what I'm getting at is there's there's really two different things. There's soil reports, which is, a, again, type topography, uh, geological information based on the area in general. And, and many times the data they have is based on testing that was done right on your property, but it might have been done decades ago. Uh, or data reported on property near yours very recently. They, it it, it kind of varies in my understanding. Soil testing is a totally different situation where we actually are getting a report on what is the organic matter content in this soil right here. So I'll give you an example of how these things can become very different. I met a gentleman in, uh, in Missouri uh, a few years ago who is farming about, I think, 18 acres of about 80 that he bought. And he's been doing so for quite a number of years now. It might be 20 acres because I know the, I think the rows he's doing are 18 feet wide, which with his machinery on his tractor to cut or to plow, um, he'd make, he can make exactly two passes. One in one direction, turn around, one in the other direction. That's why he picked that distance. And he has a, a set group of six different things he plants. One is corn, one is a legume, one is a cover crop. I don't remember what everything is, but it works like that. And each year, 
it rotates. So each one shifts over and restarts at the end, so to say. And he's been doing that, like I said, now for quite a while. He sent in soil to do soil samples to, I believe, NRCS. And he got a phone call, and they said, you know, you're going to get in trouble. You're not supposed to be plowing up native prairie soil. And he, he's not on native prairie soil. In fact, his farm is so bad, or was so bad, that when he bought it, he went down to the tax office to talk to the lady. She said, oh, you're the fool that bought that worn-out old farm. Well, now he's got soil on the part that he's been managing that way that's better than anything around him. And you can see his results, and the people around him still think he's wasting his time. It's, you know, it, it's amazing to me. And he's got to the point now where he can start grazing animals in certain strips, and he has, at this point he hadn't even started that. So, yes, you can have a big... I'm sure that the NRCS soil survey would differ wildly in its opinion of that piece of ground than a soil analysis by testing today. So if you really want to know where you are, what you want to do is, is take proper soil samples and get test results. Now, the thing is, most of the time, you're going to be told things like you need to add X, Y, and Z to that soil so that you can, you know, do whatever to it. And this is because that type of service generally serves the person who wants to plant corn or beans. And it's a lot of a lot of the same principles we talked about with gardening in the last one. How we manage that land changes a, a tremendous amount of things. So I think one of the reasons that people ask this question is they'll get an NRCS report on their land, and it's pretty negative. And you know they want to do permaculture, and then they're worried about that. Well, here's the good news: permaculture was never actually designed in the beginning, anyway, to be used on what we would call arable land the land that is the best for farming corn and beans and wheat and soy. Um, Bill Mollison and David Holgram developed permaculture uh, methodology specifically for the land that was considered either too badly damaged or never right for agriculture in the first place. And said, hey, look, here's all of these techniques that, that man has used throughout history, and here's a design science component to go with it so that we can take these lands that are either too steep or too shallow in soil or too dry or whatever, and we can transform them into productive land. And let's start there. Now, I think we, we really, with a larger goal now, do want to move more into the larger scale you know, lands that are arable, but you know, even those lands are not quite as arable anymore because of bad management practices and over-reliance on chemical fertilizers. So if you got a negative report, don't let that put you off, but there's a lot of variables here, like how much land do you have? If you have 100 acres of land, their report's going to be far more accurate than if you have an acre, just because you're going to be much more broadly analogous to the sampling of what's around you. So I think it's more important for you that you figure out what you want to do with the land. And yes, I think it would make sense to get soil testing done to get a baseline of where you are. But in the end, solid management of land, uh, depending on what you're going to do, whether that's rotational grazing, whether that's cropping in a specific methodology like the gentleman I mentioned from Missouri, um, all of these different ways can improve soil no matter what you're starting with, assuming you have soil. There's only so much you can do with rock. I know that well. But if you guys look at the video I put out today, you can even make that work. Hope that helps you understand the difference there. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Carl from Michigan. I'm wondering how far does water need to be uh, run through the dirt in order to be purified 
from pesticides and herbicides. I have about eight acres next to me and he grows corn and soy and he sprays them with different things. The acreage is tiled and the water runs through my property. I would like to take that water and pump it into my pond, but I don't know how clean it is. I was just wondering if you knew how far the water has to go through the dirt in order to be purified from all the chemicals. Thanks for all you do. You know, there's there's really no good answer to that question because it's not about how far it goes through the earth. And in my personal gut and instinct, I would not pump that into um, your your pond. I, you know, I mean, if you were going to even think about that, then whatever method you developed as a uh, filtration and remediation, that water would have to end up somewhere. And when that water ended up somewhere at that point, I'd want to test it before I made the decision to put that anywhere in my pond. Now, that said, there's a lot that can be done with things like reed beds and riparian barriers. So, I mean, one of the first things I would think about is a very hardy, very nutrient-hungry, um, somewhat useful uh, tree, whether it be useful for timber, biomass, whatever, and I would plant the property line with that. So that as that water's coming, and, and then do some, maybe it's a swale-based system at that point that infiltrates that water so that those trees can take that water up. And I don't want you to make the decision to do that based on my comments here because I don't know enough about your property, the layout, the size of it, the scope of it, your individual management capabilities to do that. But I'm just saying like that's one type of thing that you'd want to look at. If I wanted to make water safe for use, then I would take the approach of, of building multi-stage reed beds. Uh, and no matter where you are, there's probably a reed that will live there. Uh, like river cane or something like that. And people say, well, I have to, weed reeds are tropical. There's all kinds of reeds and rushes that will do this for you. And many times, um, if you use the, them, they will break down whatever it is that's going on. And it, see, my concern here is you've got two different things. You've got fertilizer runoff, which is bad, but it's not terrible. Uh, if we're putting, you know, com commercial fertilizer into reeds and they're they're using that synthetic fertilizer and they're growing and they're taking it up. It, it's not like when we cut that reed down and compost or mulch with it, synthetic fertilizer comes back out of it. That that's not as big of a concern to me. Um, with with pond water, it's a huge concern because if we're putting nutrient rich water into a pond, we're going to get major algae blooms and we're going to kill every life form in the pond other than the algae which eventually will kill itself off and die and become stagnant and go to the the bottom and make the problem even worse the next time around. So I, I really don't want over nutrient water in a pond. The next thing though is things like glyphosate and atrazine and stuff like that. The 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 um uh, the herbicides that can potentially be in that water. And that's why, you know, good hardy things like thornless honey locust, you know, and if it kills them, then you know you got a problem, right? But it probably won't. And, and so you need to think about it. I would be thinking about it more this way. How do I create a barrier between myself and this farm that is multi-staged? Multi One, you got the water, but every time they spray, you've got drift, 
So if we put in big, high trees, we help with that drift problem as well. And I would try to manage things you know, on my own property without trying to take that water from them. That said, I remember a project that Jeff Lawton did in the deserts of Jordan, a very dry environment, and they did actually use water runoff from a conventional farm in their irrigation system through the swales that they put in. And it worked rather well. Um, so I, I think it has a lot to do with exactly what's there. So, I mean, the first thing I'd want to do is get that water tested by someone that's going to test for the type of thing that you're going to be concerned with. And uh, when you mentioned tile, so what they're doing is they're pushing water out of their field during the time of year where it rains a lot. So they're creating a hard surface runoff. Because of that, depending on the timing of their applications, it may not be that bad, but you've got to have it tested. And if it comes in multiple different times of the year, then I'd want to know, well, you know, is it is it worse in spring than it is in fall or what have you? And, you know, I, I, without that baseline of what that water's like, I, I don't want anything to do with it, personally. Um, again, if I'm going to do anything, I'm looking at riparian barriers, uh, and that's going to create climate moderation and many other uh, beneficial things. Uh, if we're looking at a, a high biomass tree, again, like, say, thornless honey locust, uh, autumn olive might be a great species to use as a, a combination riparian barrier there. Uh, as long as it doesn't kill those trees, it's probably okay um, in the in the subsurface. But if you just think you're going to create some kind of a... See, I'm not even sure what you're thinking you do. Some kind of earth filter or something, and water's going to come out the other side, it's going to be all okay. I, 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 don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I think we need biology to take care of this beyond just uh, uh, earth filtration, I guess is what it sounds like you're asking about. So if you can clarify more, if anybody has any ideas for this type of situation, please let me know. If you want to give me more details, this actually sounds like an excellent question for Jeff Lawton. But I'm going to tell you right now, he's going to need more detail than you gave me. Um, specifically, your, the size of your property, the size of your pond, what you actually mean by moving through the earth, uh, how you would accomplish that. If you can give me those details in an email, I'll get it over to Jeff, and we'll see between the two of us if we can come up with a uh, more uh, conclusive solution. Next, we have a question about ducks. Hi, Jack. I have a question about ducks. What plant should I have in my duck habitat? And what else should I have in there for them? The details. I have four Swedish blue adults and two Peking ducklings. Uh, I have a, about a third of an acre property with uh, about two-thirds of that is fenced. Uh, when we need to put the ducks in a backyard fenced-off area, we have a 720-square-foot duck area there for them, um, for if we have friends with dogs over or whatnot. Uh, half of that space is nutka rose, white snowberries, and some field bindweed around the fences. Uh, they also have a four-foot-by-six-foot duck house and a uh, raised pond. It's four-foot diameter. Uh, I put a drain in the bottom of it so we can pull water out of it to fertilize the gardens. But what kind of plants and habitat should I have in there for them besides what I have? Uh, most of the time during the day, they're able to run around the yard and, and forage through the grass and the rest of the yard for slugs and bugs and whatnot, but I want to make sure that they're self-contained when they are in their uh, in their own little area. Thanks. Have a great day. So, I mean, here's the thing. Um, if you'll eat it, a duck will probably eat it. That's one way. If it's a, ve if it's a vegetative uh, thing and, and you'll eat it, a duck will probably eat it. So, and then probably a lot of things you wouldn't eat, they'll eat. They, 
They like clovers. They like plantains. They like, I mean, if you just watch them run around in your yard and see what they're foraging on there, uh, then the same types of things would be what you want to provide them. Now, you only have four ducks and you have a, a 720-foot area, so you may be able to keep some vegetation uh, without it being completely devastated in their holding area, but you still may not. I mean, I, I really don't know because this is the thing about ducks, and it's one of the reasons that they had to leave my property in the numbers that they were in anyway. They really like young, tender stuff, and they will pull it out of the ground. They will rummage around. They'll dig it up. If it gets wet, as you know, since you have even just a small number, then they make mud holes. Uh, they put their beaks down in the mud, and they filter feed. If you look at a duck's beak closely, it has what looks like little serrations, almost like knife serrations, but they're not sharp. What they are is uh, filters that allow them to actually push uh, liquefied soil laterally through their beaks and use those things to filter out and find whatever it is that they're looking for. That's part of what makes them such amazing foragers. Uh, unlike a cow or a goat or a sheep that can only eat vegetation, uh, they'll eat whatever they can get in their beak and swallow that tastes good to them. So they'll eat vegetation. Uh, they'll eat even certain fungi. I've seen them eat certain mushrooms. Uh, they'll eat tubers. They'll eat insects. They'll eat grasshoppers. I mean, they'll eat any animal they can get their hand on. If you don't think a duck will eat a mouse, you ain't seen enough ducks around mice. I've seen ducks and geese uh, eat mice. I've seen, I've seen geese throw rats uh, that were too big to eat, but just pick them up and use that long neck and whip them against a tree because they don't like them. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's what makes them such good foragers. They'll eat almost anything. I think if we, we were shrunk down like in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I think a duck could eat us pretty quick. If we were the size of a small mouth or, mouse or smaller, they would not even care that we're humans. They would eat us. That's how aggressive and carnivorous they are. They eat minnows and water. So you can grow just about anything that, that you would eat and they'll eat it, or you can grow about anything that would be a tender forb. Uh, or clover type plant, or you know, I mean, lamb's quarters. I have lamb's quarters every. I thought the lamb's quarters were gone from this property, and as soon as they were not able to forage, here's lamb's quarters. So lamb's quarters is a real easy weed that you can grow. But again, I think if if they're in a holding area for any length of time, they're going to eat down to the ground. Uh, those things. So one of the things you might consider is function stacking. So ducks like shade. So inside my aviary with my quail and my little chickens, I have 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks up on stands that I built, and I grow food for me there. And one of the plants that I grow in those tanks is a sweet potato. And sweet potato greens are quite edible, and the Japanese purple sweet potato is one that I am particularly fond of. And when I, again, every time I say this, I have to make sure I'm clear, because there is a purple tuber sweet potato, the Japanese uh, purple sweet potatoes that I'm speaking of have a white, like golden white flesh and a very thin purple skin, purple to red skin, and they have a really great, wonderful green, and they're, they're fantastic sautéed, they're one of our go-to summer greens. Well, they grow at an astronomic rate, so what we do is we trail them over the sides, and when they get down low enough to where the quails and the chickens can reach them, well, they're welcome to eat whatever they can. They eat the end off, it grows back. They eat the end off, it grows back. That type of approach might work well for you because you'll provide them with shade. Ducks are not good flyers, not domestic ducks anyway, like yours. So they're not going to be able to get up in there and cause problems. That would be one way. Another way would be to grow things along the fence that you have for them that they can eat through the fence. That's, that's another thing you can do. 
One of the things I do in my aviary, and something you really might want to consider for your ducks, especially since you have water, you're draining, etc., is I take a frame that has quarter-inch hardware cloth on it, and I put that on the ground. And before I do that, I spread out, like, let's say, a bunch of ryegrass, and I water it. And then the chickens and the quails eat the grass as it comes up through. That would be a very simple thing that you could do. If you used a little, you know, the thing is, if they can reach through, they'll pull it out, right? But if you used a little bit bigger hole and it was there was enough depth that it took you know, a while before their little beak could get it, you know, sprouted sunflower that way. I'm looking at this right now because eventually we will bring ducks back. I have that holding area about the size you do that probably four ducks are going to go in, uh, along with four little bantam chickens. And uh, we have to kind of think the same way, maybe a little bit more, because you're letting yours out probably more than I will be for quite a while. Um, but any type of thing that excludes them from the root system. And then, like I said, young grass, young clover, uh, any, kind of, uh, any kind of seed that you would use to make edible sprouts, daikon, radish, uh, arugula, th those types of things. Arugula, to me, is a bit expensive for them to do uh, for them, but uh, amaranth. I mean, they love amaranth. Uh, it, it, and it, again, you may have to take more of the approach of you're going to grow for a while for them with some sort of an exclusion device and then remove that and let them have it and, and, and keep moving that around. Um, you can go down to a, a store like Sprouts, right, and they, have, they sell bulk grains. And they sell amaranth for people to eat for something like $1.80 a pound, which is way less than you can buy seed for anywhere. And I think they even have it prepackaged, and it's like a dollar ninety-nine for like two and a half pounds or something. It's just in a clamshell. That grows a lot of amaranth, and they're not going to like it when it's really big. They like it when it's little. So if you did that same type of thing, build yourself some sort of a just all out of of, of cage material, like uh, like uh, you know, use some split ring pliers uh, and some uh, some. Uh, fencing material or hardware cloth or whatever and just build yourself a box and somehow hold it down you know stake it down so they can't move it because they will and they'll nibble around the sides of it but let that grow up and either let the plants grow through it and let them nibble off of it as it go if you can do it with whatever plant you're doing but what I've ended up doing with my little chickens is I just keep them out of there until it's really grown in well and I just pick it up move it and replant it Uh, another thing could be planting a, a lot of stuff that they would like right around the perimeter, and again, they can reach through. But then what you can do on days you're not letting them out is just go by with something like a rice knife or a hand sickle or something like that and just cut off a couple of big handfuls of it and throw it to them. The most productive plant that we ever grew that our ducks loved, and I mean absolutely loved, is Kang Kong, also known as Ch uh, Chinese uh, or Taiwanese water spinach. Uh, it's probably not supposed to be grown in your area, but it probably wouldn't matter if you did it anyway, I'm just saying. And uh, that would be a plant that you'd want to either grow in a way that trails down, that they can eat as it trails down to them, uh, or you'd want to grow it somewhere where you can then take, take you know, cut off a big portion of it and give it to them. How much of this stuff can you grow in a small area? Uh, I grew in a 14-gallon concrete tray ebb and flow bed over, over a 100-gallon deep water tank. And the vines went down in the tank, so they were both in the uh, the grow bed and in the deep water tank. But, I mean, you're talking like a six-square-foot area. And uh, I was cutting like a bushel every three to four weeks and just carrying it out in my arms. It, like it's, I could barely get my arms around it and throwing it to the ducks, and they were devouring it. 
So a very small system like that could either just be trailed over or, again, cut it whenever you decide there's too much of it, and it's good for you to eat, too. So, I mean, you can really do just about, again, anything green that's palatable they'll eat. Um, varying their diet is a great idea. And, and, you know, the other thing is what we found is in a holding area, a lot of times because of their droppings and all, flies will come in, and when they do that, You hear snap, 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 snap as they snap the flies out of the air with their beaks. And if you have the duck house you mentioned, um, we've noticed that a lot of times in the spring the flies will get really bad in there. And they make a uh, organic insect spray that is nothing but water and lemongrass oil That's it, it, and, and some sort of you know compressed air. And uh, it kills flies like stone dead. And I you know, imagine you could make a misting system uh, that would that would basically just add lemongrass oil to it, and it would work as well. Well, lemongrass oil is not toxic. It, it kills insects because of how it affects their exoskeletons. Uh, but you know, we use lemongrass in cooking. So I mean, lemongrass is a key ingredient for Thai dishes. So if you create a lemongrass misting system that kills insects, well, your ducks are going to eat those insects. Uh, and now they're eating Taiwanese insects, basically. They've been seasoned with lemongrass, you know. Maybe put a little ginger in the, in the mist, too, to give them a little more flavor. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm not, right? I'm kidding about the flavor, but I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out that it's completely not toxic. Another thing that we will probably be doing over our fish tank uh, and for our chickens as well is to uh, install a bug zapper on a timer. And I have seen bug zappers don't seem to do jack diddly crap in the morning. And when I was a kid, you know, watching bugs get zapped was really exciting entertainment. It really was. We used to find bugs and throw them in there, things like that. But you, you would think, like, if you're camping as a kid with your buddy, you'd be watching bugs get zapped all night, and, and you don't. Like, the, the, it, as it starts to get dark, it gets really, really active, and then about an hour to hour and a half after dark, you know, it slows down to, like, one bug every 20 minutes. And then in the middle of the night, when you're up telling lies and stories to each other, and it's midnight and you're looking at it, you know, maybe you see one once an hour or twice an hour, something fly into it. So given that that early period is when you get the most, I'm probably going to suspend bug zappers for all the animals are that will eat bugs and put them on timers that run uh, for two hours uh, after dark and uh, maybe an hour before. Because that dusk period is when that that, that tends to uh, be the most active, so you could do things like that for them too. And what I recommend you do is put some sort of a tray, a collection tray or whatever, under there to make it a little bit more uh, obvious to them what's going on. And uh, once they start eating the bugs, then you could probably remove that tray. I've just noticed that a lot of times when you're doing something that's creating a feeding element that they're not familiar with with ducks, that doing something to highlight it for them, then they, they catch on really quick. They're, ducks are not smart, but what they know, they know well, I guess is the way that I would put it. So those are some ideas. I hope that helps you. Let's, uh, I think I have two more questions today. Let's go ahead and take care of those. Yes, I'm curious. Have you ever heard of the 460 Roland? Okay, it's just I just ran across this by accident the other day looking up 10 millimeter uh, videos. Um, it takes a 45 ACP with a conversion kit and turns it into 44 magnum um, power. Uh, everything I've read about it is positive, but I'm just curious if you heard about it. What's your opinion about it? Thank you. So the uh, the 460 Roland is a completely legit round, and I you know, and it has a purpose. Um, I don't see it as a good carry gun, and one of the reasons I don't see it as a good carry gun is you know, you're going to use something like a 1911 
uh, or Glock 21 to, uh, to, to, to make a 460 Roland. As far as I know at this point, no one offers a stock 460 Roland, though I do think the company behind 460 Roland, uh, does sell, uh, Glock 21 conversions for a fairly reasonable price, by the way. I think most people choose to take a gun and have it converted. But when you do that for everything to operate right with the pressures that are created, because the 460 Roland essentially is a hot-loaded 45 ACP that's loaded so hot that it performs at 44 Magnum levels. The cartridge is a little bit longer than the 45 ACP, but it's not really longer so you can get more powder in there. It's a very small amount longer. The only reason that's done is as a safety mechanism so that you can't take a 460 Roland and throw it into an unconverted 1911, let's say, and cause yourself bad problems like getting gas in the face and maybe damaging or ruining your gun and ruining your day and going to the ER because that's the kind of things that could happen. Is the same type of thing, the 38 Special versus the 357 Magnum. Yes, the 357 Magnum is slightly longer. No, it's not longer enough to significantly increase the powder capacity. We just can use different powders to load the 357 Magnum to higher pressures than are safe in the 38 or the 38 plus P. It's the same type of thing. Well, to do that with the gain that's accomplished, we've got to put a muzzle brake on the gun. When we do that, we significantly increase the size of the gun. So for an officer, if they wanted to carry this as a duty piece where you're open carrying, or for someone that is in an open carry state that routinely open carries, I guess it would make a fine carry gun, but I think it would take an already large frame gun that already has some challenge with concealed carry and push it beyond what is comfortable for most people. So I see it more as a, as a semi-auto hunting handgun, uh, though it, again, it, it does have combat and law enforcement applications, I would guess, uh, to have that higher power. It is significantly uh, a leap past the, the, the 10 millimeter. However, for most of the big game that you would hunt, if you wanted a 1911 frame, uh, the 10 millimeter would be as adequate, even if ballistically on paper the 4060 Roland was, uh, was more powerful. So, for instance, what I'm saying is if you shot a deer in the vitals with a 10 millimeter with a proper slug uh, from a 10 millimeter, it would be no less dead than if you shot it with a suitable bullet from a 460 Roland. I, from my research, I don't see that they're any more accurate because I found out about this kind of the way you did. I was looking at 10 millimeters and conversion options and things like that and found this thing and thought, hey, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, I don't think there's any significant volume available of commercial produced ammunition, so you have to reload your own. The good news is because it really is a 45 ACP, which is a slightly elongated case, if you have reloading dies for 45 ACP, you can use the same dies. You just use different load data, uh, and, and, and you have to use that little bit longer case. The other advantage is you take 45 ACP, you drop it in your 460 conversion uh, Roland handgun, it shoots just fine. Just like you know, 38 Special shoots just fine in the 357 Magnum. Whereas, as far as I know, anyway, if you put you take a 10 millimeter handgun and put uh, 40 Smith and Wesson, you have functioning problems and all. It doesn't work. Uh, that's that's my understanding of that, anyway. So, um, would I do it personally? Probably not. I think I think the Glock can handle up to 13 rounds. 
So I think if, if you were going to do it, the, the compelling thing would be to go with the Glock, because now you have high-capacity semi-auto 44 Magnum performance, and by the way, with that muzzle brake, about one-third less muzzle flip and muzzle jump than the 44 Magnum. So if you wanted that as a, a duty piece, an open carry piece, uh, or a hunting handgun, or maybe in some sort of contractor combat application, I, I guess. I mean, if you want, I don't get in the way of what anybody wants. But if I wanted just a pure handgun to shoot deer with, um, and I wanted a 45 ACP, you know, format, in other words, I wanted a 1911, it would be really hard to talk me out of just going out and buying a 10 millimeter 1911. It's going to be a heavier gun. The, the frame of the 1911s that they do in 10mm is heavier, uh, a little bit bigger. It's got a little bit bigger hand grip to it and what have you. But when you start talking about that level of recoil, uh, it, that's not a bad thing, especially in a hunting handgun. Would I want one if I had an unlimited budget? Probably. And if somebody gave me one, would I be very happy about it? Yes. If I was making a decision between the 10 and the 460, and I didn't want to hand load for myself, I would probably go with the 10 -load. There's a lot of great uh, self-defense ammo and a lot of great hunting ammo available off the shelf in 10 millimeter. I don't think that's the case with 460 Roland, though you probably have custom reloading shops and things into it like that. Um, I know I'll hear from somebody that loves this thing about how wrong I am. Again, I'm not putting your pet little round down. I, I just, it, again, I, I think you, to compel me... I'd have to be looking at the Glock platform because now you've got capacity going with, with you where if you're looking at a 1911, you're, you're, you know, you're still looking at chambering you know, with chambering all eight rounds, right? So um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't fault you if you did. And it is, a, it is an amazing performing round that seems to have a, a really decent amount of inherent accuracy. Uh, but I think if you were going for a hunting handgun, I, I just think, you know, there's better options. I would personally uh, rather have a really nice Ruger Red Hawk in 44 Magnum, a six-gun, uh, for hunting deer uh, than a, a, a rolling conversion, uh, specifically if that Red Hawk was designed that at some point if I wanted to, I could put a handgun scope on it, uh, depending on what type of hunting I was doing, or even a red dot sight. Just That's just me, though. Um wouldn't wouldn't steer you away from it, just wouldn't do it myself. Let's take uh, one final question today. Jeff, how do you start a Roth IRA? You talk all the time about, you know, getting, saving for investing and blah, 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 but how do you start from scratch? Because I am in my late 20s and have not started, like, a formal retirement fund. So how do you do that? Thanks. So if you first of all, if you have a financial advisor, you just tell them that's what you want to do, and they'll hook you up. Of course, if you had one, they probably already would have told you you needed one and and got you to do it. Or if they weren't as good at their job, uh, convince you to do a traditional IRA. Um, if you want to do it on your own, which is fine, there's a million ways to. Odds are you can go down to your bank and say you want to open up a Roth IRA, and they can help you set that up in a couple minutes in, in, in the new accounts area. Uh, the problem with that will be that you probably will not have a lot of options as to what to invest in. Uh, my, my son and my wife went down, and he opened up a Roth IRA when he was 18 years old. They didn't tell me they were going to do it. He put a couple thousand bucks in it. 
And uh, at least it was a Roth. I'll give them credit for that. But they bought uh, a bank CD for $2,000. It was paying like 1% interest back then. And it was like, okay, you, now you've locked that. Even though it's, you know, you can withdraw principal from an, a Roth IRA, you can trade around in it with no tax. Now you've locked that money up for two years at a piss ant interest rate. But hey, it's a good start. So uh, that's good that you have that. And let's uh, talk about what to do it two years from now. Uh, the best place, in my opinion, to open up a Roth IRA will be within an online brokerage account, which will give you access to just about every stock, mutual, fund, ETF, etc. that you could ever want to, to, to purchase. So the way that we would do that then is we, we, we would open up, let's say, an E-Trade account or a TD Ameritrade account. And once you have your account set up, there'll be options in there. Open Roth, you click it, and you will... Open your Roth IRA, and then you'll fund it by whatever mechanism you choose to fund your brokerage account. And then when you're going to, to purchase, let's say, an ETF, you'll have a choice of where the funding comes from. And so let's say you have a money market account that is with your non-tax-deferred stuff, and you have a money market account that was in your tax-deferred Roth IRA because we have to contribute to the Roth IRA and then we can invest in it. That's how we get that money out of the world of having its interest and its income taxed, right? So we would say, I want to buy uh, $2,500 worth of uh, ETF XYZ, which probably doesn't exist, which is why, because I don't give advice, right? So we would, and when you do that, you know, source of funding will be right there in your purchase of it, and you would select the account that is inside your IRA. Or let's say you decided you wanted to sell a stock in your Roth IRA uh, so that you could buy another stock. You would first execute the sell order in that particular account, And that will move the money into a money market or cash value fund of some sort, that, depending on the brokerage you have. And then you would have that money available to purchase the next security. And it's, it, for you, from your standpoint, just making sure you spend the right money the right way, right? From your standpoint, managing that Roth IRA would be no different than managing any other uh, E-Trade type account or any other online bank account. Just again, if you use a brokerage service, again, the two that are probably, actually the three that are probably the most popular online are, uh, well, I get to, it is, uh, the, now it's, uh, they, they, they went together. So it's Ameri TD Ameritrade, right? And, uh, and, uh, geez, I can't, E-Trade, which why well, I don't know why I fumbled that. That's, that's why I use E-Trade. Uh, Ameritrade, in my opinion, is better if you're a high frequency trader. If you do a lot of trades, You save enough money per trade. Last time I checked, uh, I opened up an E-Trade account so many years ago, I've just kept it, and I don't trade that often. Uh, so it doesn't really, you know, and you're talking about a couple bucks a year or something then, but people that trade a lot of volume, you would probably be better off with Ameritrade and total cost. Note that when I say cost, I'm not counting things like management fees in, in a mutual fund. If you buy a mutual fund, XYZ mutual fund, right, and you bought that through TD Ameritrade or you bought it through E-Trade, if there's a management fee by the fund manager, and there is, that fee comes off the back end regardless of any cost of trading commissions and things like that. So it, it, it is that simple. I guess if you've never done it before, it might seem a little bit intimidating. It's a Roth IRA. Now, again, the beauty of a Roth IRA 
is let's and you can put up to fifty five hundred dollars a year in a Roth IRA, and if you're over sixty, I think it is, you can move up to sixty five hundred bucks. This is like the best tax deferment vehicle in the world because yes, you do pay tax on the money you put into the Roth IRA, but if you're a young person, especially investing in your thirties, and you put five thousand bucks in this year, and that money sits there for twenty or thirty years, earning returns. The returns will far outweigh the principal, and you won't pay tax ever on any of the returns. Whereas if we put $5,000 in when we're 30 years old, and we start withdrawing money when we're, let's say, 65, we will pay tax on all the money as we withdraw it as earned income. So either we pay the tax now and never pay it again, or we don't pay the tax now, and then we pay it forever on the money we withdraw. And that's why I say if your financial advisor tells you that you should get a conventional IRA, you should get a new financial advisor. And most people would be better off doing that anyway, honestly. Um, but when you self-manage, you don't have to deal with the nonsense when you decide, hey, you know what? I want, I want to take, uh, take $2,000 out of my Roth IRA because of something that came up. I don't advise that as the best idea, but maybe there's a reason for it. Well, as long as you've contributed more than $2,000... You can take $2,000 out of it and do anything you want with it whenever you want to because you already paid the tax on it. There's no interest in penalties. If you withdraw beyond your contributions, okay, then you pay interest in penalties like you would in a conventional IRA because now you're taking money that was supposed to be never taxed but not touched until your age of withdrawal. And that you'll pay interest and penalties on, but you never pay interest and penalties on money withdrawn from a Roth IRA. So when life emergencies come up and it does happen and you need to go there, or all of a sudden you get an opportunity to start a business and you need an extra five, you got, let's say it's a $20,000 investment, then you got 15 grand. And you decide, you know what? I've got this couple hundred thousand dollars I've been saving for retirement. I want to invest 5,000 of that in my own business. Well, you can go get that $5,000 out, assuming you contributed at least $5,000. You can do something with it. So I just think it's it, it's a great investment vehicle, um, and it, it, it makes sense to manage it yourself because if you get into that point of decision, you don't have to first educate your financial advisor that you can do that because a lot of them don't know that you can do that. And I just don't understand how you pass a Series 6 or Series 7 exam and don't know what some dumbass redneck farmer in Texas knows. I, I really don't. Um, but... Uh, The other thing is they always will try to talk you out of it because that money's under their management, so they're getting paid on it. And, and, you know, to me, my needs outweigh your desire to earn your piddly commission on my extra five grand this year. I don't even want to have a conversation with you about it. It, it, It's unbelievable to me, some of the people I've dealt with in the past, what you have to explain to them so they'll shut up and do what you say. Because he said, my advisor, what I expect you to do is tell me what you think I should do. And then I'll weigh what you think I should do, and then I'll make a decision, and then you do what the hell I tell you to do. And when I tell someone who works for me, because that's what they do, hey, you know what, the, the market's about to crash, I want to go all cash, and they go, well, you really shouldn't do that. I'm like, what What did you not hear me say? What, what words that came out of my mouth were you incapable of understanding? Uh, so when you self-manage, you don't have to deal with that. And as you get more sophisticated as an investor, eventually you'll realize there are advisors who are actually more investment manager type people, and you might want one of those. 
but your, your standard garden variety financial advisor that works with somebody that has an automatic deposit of $200 a month, they don't really do much of anything. I'm sorry, again, if you're one of those people, they really don't. They have a home office that makes a pie chart that tells you what to do based on a survey you filled out, and then you are basically a, a, a sales client uh, that is maintained through relationship sales, which involves sitting down with you and bullshitting with you once a year. You know, I mean, I, I, I used to have advisors like that back when I didn't qualify to have better ones. And you'd get the call, well, we want to sit down and, like, hey, you know what, just tell me, tell me what you think we should do. Well, we need to reevaluate and talk about these new tax laws. No, no, are, are you going to have a freaking recommendation for me? Are you going to tell me at the end of sitting there bullshitting with you for 45 minutes that you recommend I leave everything the way it is? Is that what you're going to do? Well, probably then, okay, goodbye, click. Seriously, I don't have time for your shit. Uh, it's amazing to me that because that's they're doing that because that's how they're trained, and their job is when you want to bail out of the market to talk you off the ledge. So I love self-managed. Now there's a difference between self-managed and self-directed IRAs that goes beyond the scope of this. But what we've been talking about, like you would do inside TG Ameritrade or um, E-Trade or what have you, that is a a self uh, self-directed. So you are controlling the decisions, but it's held by a brokerage self. Uh, a self-managed, uh, that's self-managed, I'm sorry. Self-directed is like you do all your own paperwork. Generally, it's used for precious metals that you want to hold. You can have a safe put in your house and buy silver in a Roth IRA in a self-directed IRA and act as your own bank, so to say, so that you can actually open it and put your hand on it. I'm not a big fan of that, not because I don't like the self-directed concept, because I don't like precious metals held in physical status inside an IRA. The only way I would do that, if I wanted to buy a bunch of precious metal for some reason, and I had a lot of money available that was in a tax-deferred account, and I didn't want to pull it out and take the penalties on it, right? then I would absolutely do a self-directed IRA so that I could use that money to buy the silver and gold. But if I have a Roth IRA, because I listen to Jack and other smart people like him, and I've been investing for a long time, and I decide I want to put $5,000 into silver for whatever reason, and I don't want a silver ETF inside that account, well, I can sell $5,000 worth of securities, take that out as cash to myself, go physically buy the silver, hold on to it. No, it doesn't get untaxed, not taxed if it's ever sold in the future, but it also just disappeared into nothingness and I can do whatever I want to with it, where if I'm holding it inside an IRA, even a self-directed one, it's on the government radar, is the most publicly disclosed money in the world. That's why I, you know, I use IRAs and things like them for what they're best at. And anything else, I'd prefer it to be as anonymous and private as possible. Hopefully that helps you guys. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. A lot of kind of ag stuff today. And if you tuned in for the first time, you're like, you know, I don't know a farming show with some investing and a, finally a gun question. You control these shows. These shows are all about you. All you got to do is pick up your phone, 866-65-THINK. You want different questions? Call them in. Tell me what you want to hear, and we'll talk about those things. Or go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on contact, and use the speak pipe and send your questions to me through the magic 
of the interwebs. That brings us to the part of the show where I remind you another way that you can help support us is really simple, and that is if you're going to shop online, you go to a website first. That website is tspaz.com, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, where you see all my reviews of Amazon products. But as long as you shop at tspaz, when you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. Today I have a product for review for you that I'm not going to talk about a lot because I talked about it yesterday in yesterday's show about home brewing, but it is the Hamilton Beach Electric Kettle. Uh, I believe that an electric kettle is one of the best and most useful flexible implements in a, in a kitchen that you can have. It makes hot water whenever you want it, quickly, efficiently, and if you forget about it, you don't come back to find a pot where you burned all the water to the bottom and the pot is burning, so you've literally burnt water, which I had a girlfriend in high school that in home ec class actually did that. In home ec class, she burnt water. It used to be a joke that it was real. She did it. Anyway, um... I did it once myself, by the way. I get forgetful. So if you have an electric kettle, that doesn't happen. You click the thing, it shuts off when it's done. And you use it for whatever you need hot water for. Making tea, making small batch mead, boiling eggs, reconstituting mountain house, you name it. And I've owned a couple of them, and I've never had to buy another one since I bought the Hamilton Beach. The other two, I don't recommend because they went tits up, and I had to buy another one, and then I had to buy another one. That one was the Hamilton Beach, and now I'm done, and I've had it for like five years, and I use it multiple times a week. So that would put it at a pretty high MTBF rating. Anybody know what MTBF is? That would be mean time between failures. Anyway, uh, remember, always, you can help support the Survival Podcast when you shop online by going to tspaz.com. That brings us to the song of the day. This song is by Rush, one of, you know, being a 70s and 80s kid, man, one of my favorite bands. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, especially if, I guess, if you had long hair and you didn't listen to Rush, I don't know what rock you were hiding underneath. This song was written by, like many of Rush's songs, uh, Neil Peart, the drummer, and it's called Limelight. And if you, like, I know Rush, but I, I don't know that song. I mean, the second you hear the first guitar riff, you're like, oh, that song, right? I mean, you just immediately know it. And Limelight actually is, you know, of course, obviously the spotlight, or what have you. Well, I, look, I checked on Song Facts, and where that comes from is back, way, way back in the day, you know, playhouses and stuff like that, they used to shine a lantern through a lens that was full of lime uh, to create a brighter light that they would put on a performer on the front of a stage. That's on Song Facts about this. The song, as you might imagine, is about trying not to get too caught up uh, in oneself when one becomes famous and well-known. Uh, and, and trying to remain on some levels humble, and also to not like partake in uh, self-destructive behavior as, as part of where Neil Peart was coming from with the song, and also just what it's like. And yet, it is the universal dream. Like it is, it is like amazing to become famous and wealthy because you're out there performing music, and it, it does give you an incredible life. But it can also be a life that will destroy you if you don't balance it. And I have to say, in doing this show, I do not consider myself a celebrity, though I guess I would consider myself something like a D-list internet celebrity. So not a D-list celebrity uh, in the celebrity world, but in the world of internet celebrities, I'm like a D-list guy, right? I'm a D-lister. And uh, But if you go to the right place where enough people know who you are, it is like being a celebrity. And I have to say, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, like... 
if we if you come somewhere and I'm there, come talk to me, right? That's that's fine. But like the first year I did Permaculture Voices, and and it was like you know the 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 best one Diego ever did. I I think really was the first one, and he had you know Jeff Lott and Joel Salat and and Greg Judy. So it brought in everybody. There was over a thousand people there. I would say out of a thousand people, like 500 wanted to talk to me. And, and I joked I was going to get a shirt that said, not while I pee. Because, like, I would go to the bathroom and people were trying to ask me, like, Jack, can I ask you a quick question? I don't know. I'm holding my thing, dude, in the urinal. Can you wait? You know. And what that made me realize is, like, what this guy's singing about, like, I want to be successful with what I do, but I don't ever want that level. I don't want to be where I can't go out without people coming up to me. I hope that my limelight remains small enough that when it happens, it's it's pleasant. Because I'll tell you now, when I'm somewhere, somebody goes, you're Jack Spirico. That's like, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, man, I'm Jack. Who are you? And whatever. And, the, you know, we'll talk. I remember the first time that ever happened, a person didn't recognize me. They recognized my voice. And this is back when I've only been doing the show like about a year and a half. My wife and I were a little diner having breakfast in Sanibel Island, Florida. And there was a guy sitting next to us, and they had Fox News on. And somebody said something stupid, and I said something about, like, Ask Clown or something. He goes... I know who you are. And he had, he had no idea what I looked like. He'd only ever listened to the podcast. And that was cool. So when that happens, and it, you know, I'll be out somewhere, somebody like, hey, your shirt's Survival Podcast. I listened to that. Oh, wow, you're Jack. Like, when that happens, that's cool. But I think if, if I was living in the limelight like this, where you can't go anywhere without multiple people coming up to you all the time, I think I'd be miserable. I think there's a balance between success as a public person and going over the top. And then you understand why celebrities are jerks. It's an interesting thing for me, anyway, to kind of examine. And I know the first time I was really overwhelmed by people, I, I, I don't care if they say it's a universal dream. I think it's the universal dream for people that don't really know what it's like. Uh, we all want to be successful in what we do, but I think we all value our privacy and our personal lives as well. And it's a, it's a balance. And uh, I hope I do a good job of sharing enough of my life with you guys because I feel like I, I, I owe that to you. Uh, if I'm out advising you how to live, then I should be public with how I live and the results I get. If I don't do that, then I could be misleading you. But on the other hand, I hope I do a pretty good job of trying to stay humble with it as well. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. in time.